Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else, is John's question. Are you the one who is to come, or we should expect someone else? And Rachel, uh, she sent me that song, and I'd heard it before, uh, and she asked if she could play it, and I just said yes, because I was like, whatever. Um, and then I listened to it, and it tied. Well, I, I was like, ah, oh, it's John Mark McMillan. He's fine. Um, uh, and it tied. I mean, then I looked up the words, as I should do as a wise and knowledgeable pastor, um, and I looked them up, and I was like, I saw the relationship between what we saw in the funeral yesterday and the loss that comes with cancer and how we have a God who suffers alongside of us in that, um, a God who goes to the cross as well as that. Um, and the song works on multiple levels, though, because there's this, there's this another way in which it's asking, um, do these other gods have any answer or place for this? Is there Olympus, Aphrodite, these type of things? Like, and, and then within that, there's this way of thinking about John's question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? Oftentimes, that's the question that sort of drives our souls. You know, is in Jesus the one who is to come, or should we await another? And you could imagine, I mean, this is some of the early complaints about Christianity is, is comparing those two resources to say that this is a God who walked on the roads um, uh, through in the, the parable of the sower, which is in, uh, I think, all three of the, the similar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, throws his, his good news among the rock, the road, and the weeds and sort of like tells the story of how his kingdom is sprinkled in that way. Um, there's this way in which, do we want a God who is that dirty? Do we want a God who relates in that way? And certainly for the Romans um, and at the time of Jesus, and I think even for us, I mean, a God who dies on the cross is, is quite a staggering revelation. It's something forward. And now we, we wear it. Um, I can't remember who first pointed it out, but like if a group today um, established themselves and started wearing little electric chairs as, as, as the instrument of their God's death, it's sort of what we do when we wear and hang crosses. Incidentally, historically, it doesn't become a major symbol of the Christian faith until after crucifixion is outlawed by the Roman Empire. Till that point, they used um, symbols of paradise, fishes, several other things. But, but while that practice was still ongoing, it didn't seem like that could be the sign of what your God is. So this, this Sunday and next Sunday, which is Transfiguration Sunday, that's always the Sunday before we walk into the season of Lent and we join Jesus on his walk towards the cross. Um, there's another question which he asks his disciples. Jesus asks Peter, he says, Are you, uh, who, but who do you say that I am? He asks Peter that and he says, well, this is what everybody else says. And Jesus, not willing to, to let that go, says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And so these, this Sunday and next Sunday sort of come around both these questions. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else? The second one is, who do you say that I am? And Jesus in this um, time, uh, this epiphany time that we've been in, but certainly in Luke's gospel, has been displaying signs that would be answers to that question. First, in Luke's gospel, there's this miraculous birth stories is that John is this one that, this will relate to today's passages, that John is this one 
born of the last age, uh, sort of the pinnacle of it, amongst the barren. Jesus is this one born of this new age, of announcing this new thing, and so he comes amongst the virgin. And so Jesus then is this one who is instrumental. Um, both his, his body is marked with the law, as we talked about. His body is engraved with the book of Leviticus in some ways, which is the, the, the center of the Torah. I just had to count that off. I was like, before I say it, I should double check. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Yes, the center of the Torah. Um, this this book, five books, his body is engraved with that. And then as he's 12, he's found again at the temple and sort of has this relationship to the law and teaching as he's growing in stature and wisdom, it says. Luke then tells of, us of, of his baptism by John. And in Luke's gospel, um, there is no sort of tussle between Jesus and John about who baptizes who and this, that, and the other. We see that in Matthews. But then in, it moves into this genealogy that chases, traces the history of Jesus all the way back um, to Adam. Um, sort of as this one who's come from God to heal that original sin. Jesus then goes about this healing mission, this teaching mission, and this way of sort of performing miracles. But the stories that are preserved for us are often ones, and we talked about this last week, that are pointing to something beyond the miracle. There's one earlier in the gospel that we didn't preach on this year, but is this great one where he invites this man um, up and before he, he heals him, he announces that his sins are forgiven. Um, in the following scene, when he's anointed by this woman too, he announces the forgiveness of her sins. It's the liberation that Jesus seems to have come to proclaim. comes with this renewed, reconciling new creation in which the old fractures that have long plagued us are beginning to be repaired. It's certainly part of his mission, and that's why we see him restoring sight to the blind, walking to the lame, um, all these things. But this, and he says in this passage, um, I want to go back to the beginning, but, you know, that he says raising the dead, which you think would be like, okay, that's the big thing. He just raised somebody near dead in the story we read last week. In between where we are today, he raised a widow's son from the dead. Um, but then he says, and that the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That the gospel is told to the poor. Like, where are you to bury the lead, Jesus, for modern people? It's like, that's the one, the raising the dead. But, but Jesus ends the summary of what his kingdom has been doing with this proclamation of good news to the poor. Good news of this kingdom that's coming. And in Luke's gospel, this, this kingdom often overturns many of our preconceptions and this is gets heart to the heart of today's passage um i think i have it up here um are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else it's certainly a question that i think makes sense for john in matthew's gospel when he sends this question he is in prison are you the one who's going to liberate everyone put israel back in its proper renewed spot begin this thing or should I wait for someone else? Now, the early church has this funny thing is that they don't really want to make John a doubter. So they, they say that he's doing this to instruct his disciples. Some of his disciples have not gotten on board with that Jesus is the one. So he sends them out to ask the question, which I, possible. Like, I, I think that, um, as I read and study these things, commentators get really into like, you know, what is the reason he asked this? And I think 
that's all fine, but it is for us. Like, the reason why Luke preserves, if it was just for two of John's bros, um, you know, why preserve that into this text? But I think as we've been reading Luke's gospel, as we've been walking this gospel, there's a sense in which we too come to this point is, is this the one who is to come, or should we wait for somebody else? Now this question comes up um, in the section Uh, The quote on the back of the bulletin is related to this. Uh, I'll read the longer portion, but I I think it opens up a lot of ways of thinking about this. This is from um, a commentator by Frederick Dale Bruner, but he says, One form of that subtle, looking for somebody else, took in our time a form which as a missionary I became acquainted with uh, through mainly the ultra-progressive wing of the Roman Catholic Church in the Philippines in the 1960s and 70s. Went roughly like this. Jesus brought eternal salvation, but did not intend to bring a program for national liberation. He expected the near end of history and was not in the business of giving political solutions. But history has continued and the end has not come. The Christian is therefore free to adopt the scientific tools and methods that will most serve his people's social, political, and economic liberation at any given time and place. In this context, Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought pervades the concrete scientific means to answer the temporal, not eternal questions of oppressed people. Thus, it is argued the conscientious Christian will look to Jesus Christ for his eternal liberation and to contemporary Marxism for his temporal liberation. The organization Christians for National uh, Liberation in the Philippines therefore looked for a twofold salvation, a spiritual one from Jesus Christ, for that is which he came to give, and a temporal one um, in the form of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong sought. But this double vision, and this is where we get to the quote, did not work. No one can look for two messiahs. Barabbas, who is a um, released at, at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, and it says he's a zealot, he's a political sort of leader at this moment, is released. Barabbas and Jesus, for one will always eclipse the other, and our experience in the Philippines, the one eclipsed was Jesus. Jesus is either the fully competent liberator, or he is nothing at all. Now that's an interesting historical example that Frederick Dale Bruner gives there, but I think you can see it playing out in our time about so many of our hopes. Uh, you know, I'll trust Jesus with my eternal salvation, but not with my bank account. I'll trust Jesus with my eternal salvation, but I still really need to be politically motivated with this upcoming election because there is a temporal solution which I'm to be involved in. I trust Jesus with my, um, uh, I pray the Lord my soul to keep um, if I should die before I wake. But in the meantime, I will pursue all sort of medical and um, advice solutions, diets and this, that, and the other to make sure that I am um, at least able to be in fitness and health for all of my life. Is Jesus the fully competent liberator or is he nothing at all? And I think is, I'm asked myself that question. Are you the one is to come? Or are we waiting for somebody else? Is like, yes. And Jesus is the one to come, but also I've got like my, my bets hedged. Certainly not on other gods, although you could argue that some of the things um, 
that we place our hopes in have godlike powers to them. They've been stripped of their god status in our modern world, but they still have the same sort of trusting qualities to them. And so it's a question for us, too, as John asked this. I think that, that was sort of the point of that detour is, are we willing to hear the answer that this is the one who is to come fully and competently, or are we waiting for somebody else? I think particular around this mission of forgiveness of sins, too. Um, we, we certainly can and have instances in which we pursue other avenues of forgiveness. But more, I think, the confident calmness and goodness that comes from knowing this one has seen all and known all and is nearer to m- myself, to you, than you are to yourself. And pronounces peace in that place and forgiveness. Um, I think we can pursue that in a whole lot of other ways. Uh, Self-optimization would be one, but I also think our own depression and angst, um, the light of Christ can flood into our hearts and make all that stuff um, free and give us this uh, non-anxiousness, non-compulsive, non-always-winning atmosphere to go about our lives. Um, or should I wait for somebody else? Uh, it's a hard question. Um, and Jesus, in his wisdom, does not answer it, which is, like, great for us. Um, uh, Jesus is asked, uh, I looked this up, 183 questions throughout the Gospels. Does anybody guess at how many of them he directly answers? Well, it's really hard because he an- directly answers eight of them. Of 183 questions he's asked, he only gives eight direct answers. See, we would prefer that Jesus, like, you know, just lay it out there. And in John's gospel, it's funny because he has this way of saying, you know, one person's testimony about themselves isn't that trustworthy. I'm like, no, when I tell people I'm a really good, loving person and a great parent, they should just believe me. Um, <laughs> see, we even know that, too, is that one person's testimony to say, here I am, awesome that I am, uh, just believe me, people are like, mm. No. (laughs) Uh, We're going to want to see some evidence of that. And so Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has this way of sort of bringing people to confessing that themselves rather than being the one who walks on the stage and says, here I am your God, worship me. And there's a subtle way in which this sort of works out. So Jesus is, um, oh, this is... uh, just, I thought this was funny. This is another way. If we say God is dead, something is going to have to take its place, be it either uh, M- Mila, Carla, yeah, everybody knows except for me, or erotomania, the drive for power, the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. That like, if this is the one we are waiting for, or should we wait for somebody else? And you can see, uh, This was said by Malcolm Muckridge around, I think, the 1950s, 60s, you know, that one of these things as God dies in our society is going to take its place, either this extreme sort of power-only thing that he embodies in sort of Hitler or Stalin, you could say, or just this hyper-drive for pleasure that we, he says, will be embodied in sort of Hugh Hefner-like figures. And the thing that I think he missed is somehow in the modern world, we've actually tried to do both, um, which I think would terrify him all the more, like... 
We said, nah, joke's on you, Malcolm. We'll take both the drive for power and the drive for pleasure and mix them together in ways that are ultimately destructive. Um, I think in anti-human forces more than you could see. Um, uh, so are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else? Um, if your answer is no and I may not want to wait for somebody else, I think there's this chance that you will fall prey to either um, complete indifference, which I think is not a way to go through the world, or the drive for power, or the drive for pleasure. Um, these are the things that come into that place. Um, but going to Jesus' answer, um, which is not the answer, yes, Go back and to report to John to what you have seen and heard. I do think it's important that he says seen and heard. Um, these tangible things, these testimonies, as Emily invited us to at the beginning of the service, these testimonies, go back and report to what you have seen and what you have heard. Part of being a Christian, if it means um, much to us, I think, is being the people who can testify what we have seen and heard. If we are going to say this one is the one, we're not waiting for somebody else. It is for the church to be the place that we can at least go back and say, here's what I've seen and heard. I've been in a church that accepts me. I've been in a place that, that has taught me forgiveness. I've been in a place that has freed me from the anxieties of all the other things in the world. I've met a God who has touched my soul and has healed it in ways, or physical healings. I mean, this is not our church's strong suit, um, or the church in 21st century North America's strong suit, but you can hear those stories throughout the world of also these healings that still take place. Um, as they point to something, I do worry that the Christians who try to, who are quote-unquote experts in that in 21st century North America, make the signs the thing themselves rather than pointing to the thing else. And so, you know, we have healings. It's like, great, because healings, qua healings, qua healings for inf ad infinitum rather than because they point to that future fulfillment that God is going to bring. But Jesus says to them, what? Go back and see what you have heard, what I've been doing in my ministry. The blind have been receiving sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This summarizes a lot of what he's been doing in this epiphany, this revelation ministry so far. And what we can see in this is first that heavy sort of Isaiah emphasis that Shelley read us one portion of it, but like Jesus' ministry is overlaid with this Isaiah prophecy. I mean, if you've been following along, a lot of our secondary readings for most of Luke have come from the prophet Isaiah. It's almost as like, here is this one who comes. Now for John, one who also knows the scriptures, to hear this wouldn't just be check on like, here's a miraculous healer. In Matthew's gospel, we're told people who aren't even with Jesus can perform healings. What John would hear in this is that these are the signs that I've been awaiting for. He'd see that this is the one in which this God is enacting the new thing in which he is going to do. So Jesus summarizes, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. It's a challenge that I think goes back to that original question. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else? 
do you stumble over that this is the one who is to come? The one who didn't conquer, the one who didn't hold political office, the one who raised no army, the one who um, created, and I think this is one of the challenges for the Jewish thinkers of the time, created this overlap in the ages in which we've seen the first fruits of what God is going to do in his reconciliation of all things, and yet it leaves us in this, not leaves us, um, uh, gives this space for us to bring that message out to the ends of the earth, to proclaim it, and in the words of, of the latter half of the New Testament, has patience so that more may come to repentance. I mean, we talked about this at the Bema podcast thing this week, but there's like, a lot of us would be like, just kick the plug out. Like, this is time. I've had enough of the ways in which the world is broken. We should do it now. Um, and then if God were to do it, we'd be like, well, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, this is why we're not God. Um, because we would pull that plug too fast in many different ways, and we're rash and prone to... Uh, anyways, we're not good at that. Um, um, but that there's this notion in which in this time, God's patience is being exercised so that more people might come into the saving knowledge of what he began in Jesus Christ, see those first fruits of healing and forgiveness, and be freed in their lives. In some sense, to live as people on the other side already is what we're invited into. So Jesus proclaims these things back and sends John's disciples back to John. Um, And after John's messengers left, he says to the crowd, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This one is about, it is written. What Jesus is setting up here is this question. First, what did you go out to see? Um, In the ancient world, the most likely source of art was the coin. Um, That's where you saw art. And Herod's coin, oddly enough, has a reed um, in the wind on it. Um, And so what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a king? Did you go out to see a political figure? Did you go out to see somebody who could dress like a celebrity? Like you didn't go out into the wilderness to see those things. Those things reside in fine palaces. Those things reside in luxury. But if you came out to see John, what did you go out to see? You came out to see a prophet. One who's proclaiming something. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet, and he reads from a combination of Malachi and um, Exodus, that that I will send my messenger ahead of you who are away before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, there is not one greater than John. John becomes this pinnacle of the old age, the last breath of all that, that was in that. Yet one who is the least in the kingdom is greater than he. This is a new thing that Christ is opening up here. Um, and what I, what I love about this thing that he says here is that born of a woman there is no greater than John, which implies those born as into the kingdom even as the least have some other source of their birth. Um, Of course, all born of a woman, even Jesus was in Luke's gospel. But their adoption into the family of God 
comes from a different plane. It's not the natural things to be, but this is something that comes from someplace else. The one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Um, this short insight is sort of a, it's in parentheses in the NIV, but all people, even tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledges that Godway was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the expert in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. John's baptism is a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Luke's gospel and all the gospels. is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the way that appears in the King James because I think it captures what that justified by God means. All the people that heard him in the publicians, justified by God, or justified God, sorry. What's happening is they're justifying God's ways by being baptized. Um, they're justifying what God is doing. The Pharisees and the laws rejected the counsel of God against themselves by not being baptized. What all this means to say is that the ones who have justified God, who have said, I'm wrong, is odd. The ones who have justified God didn't say, hey, we've studied the law, we've become experts in it, we are protecting these people. When John appears in the wilderness, the people who are able to say, look, I need to be washed. I need a baptism for what I've done, and I need to be reminded of forgiveness are the ones who justify God. At least for me, I would think it'd be the other way around. The people doing fine are the ones who justify God, but the people, the sick who need a doctor, which is what Jesus says in the gospel, they don't justify God, they need a doctor. Um, and yet what Jesus, or Luke is portraying in humanity at the moment is it's those who are able to say, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else, who can step into the, to the, the state of saying, part of this is my fault. I've created some of this mess. I am part of the problem. What an odd group of people that God arranges in the world. To join this club, you need to admit that you are part of the problem. Like, I don't want to know those people. Um, like, I want to be inspired to be better than I am. That comes. But the entry is with those who justify God, is with those who receive that baptism that says, I'm part of what's going wrong in this world. I need repentance. And it seems like the more protection you have from that, Pharisees, lawyers, the, the top of these things, um, you can't see it. But if you are among the tax collectors and sinners, becomes clear to you that your part in that is, is there. And so Jesus ends with comparing this generation. What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace. This is a hard parable. Some people are like, is it John who plays the pipe? Or is it Jesus who plays the pipe and people refuse to dance? Is it John who came singing a dirge and these people did not cry? one interpretation. There's another in which it's two different kids sitting on the side of the walk who say, I want to play this game. And I, the other group says, I want to play this game. And no game is played. Which I think is an interesting problem we face in this world is that I want to be in the happy party. 
um, and I want to be in the sad party. And what happens is, is that nothing happens. There's this projection of the ways in which they are. For John the Baptist came eating bread, or neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said he has a demon. We didn't want that figure, which goes out in the wilderness and receives a baptism for repentance of forgiveness of sins. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, of course, launches into a long expose defending himself. Of course, he doesn't. He just says, this is what's being revealed in you. You get John. You get the one who's offering you the, the aesthetic life, and you say, no, we don't want that tune. Let's go back to the jukebox. And you get the song of joy of eating and drinking, and you say, that's not what we want either. Now, I think the New Testament teaching that helps us guide us a little bit later is that we should weep with those who weep, mourn with mourn, mourn, and laugh and celebrate with those who laugh and celebrate. That this is where this final line comes in. But wisdom is proved right by her children. Those who are wise, who are birthed of wisdom, if you want to go back to Proverbs 8, are proved right in the way in which they act and bring forth themselves to the world. They know there are times of mourning. We had one yesterday. They know there are times in which you mourn with the funeral dirge. They also know that there are times of celebration, times of eating and drinking. And so it is for us as we go forth that we are... Um, in Matthew's gospel, it's proved right by her deeds, but, but that we, Luke changes this to say that the wisdom that Jesus is embodying his teaching is going to prove right through the children, which in some ways is us. And so we have this chance to go forth as those people who can sense what time it is, who hear the answer, are you the one who is to come? Or are we going to wait for somebody else or take half our bets someplace where we can have better chance at luck and improve our chances of winning here? Or are we going to hear um, fully, competently, that this is the one who is our liberator? And be able to live into that. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are among those who ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for someone else? Open up our hearts and lives to hear and to see the signs in which you have performed, not just in front of John's disciples, but in the history and the life of your church. We can hear and see those things and go and report back. So to God, may we recognize that as John stands as the greatest of the last generation, there is something new happening in your son, Jesus Christ. Built on the nature of what became before, but revealing the heart of all of it. May we be those who acknowledge that God's way has been right. The baptisms we have received.
and as we live and grow by the power of your spirit, become examples of the wisdom that is proved right by her children. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart.